You can see a lot of New York City from the top of a double-decker bus, but outside views of the Empire State Building and the Metropolitan Museum of Art are limiting. If you never venture inside these kinds of iconic places, you'll miss out on some pretty spectacular interiors. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape. A new book encourages readers to look beyond buildings' facades. It's called Interior Landmarks, Treasures of New York. I recently talked with the two women behind the publication. My name is Judith Gora. I'm a design historian on the faculty of the New York School of Interior Design. And I was co-curator of the exhibition at the New York School of Interior Design on interior landmarks. And I'm Kate Wood, and I'm a preservation activist in New York City. I'm the president of Landmark West, which is a community organization that advocates for preservation on Manhattan's Upper West Side. And I am also a co-curator of the show at the New York School of Interior Design on interior landmarks. And we also should say co-authors of this great book, right? (laughs) Forgot. Co-authors of the book, which is actually why we're here today. So first of all, what constitutes an interior landmark, Kate? Well, by definition, in according to the New York City Landmarks Law, um, well, first of all, the law was changed in 1973 because before that, the law didn't allow for the protection of interiors. It was only exteriors, historic districts, and historic districts. So the law was changed in 1973, and by definition, an interior landmark is a space that is accessible to the public, um, so uh, commercial buildings, public buildings, uh, restaurants, uh, all kinds of buildings, but they must be accessible to the public, and they have to be at least 30 years old or older, Um, and they cannot be religious interiors uh, because of issues with um, interference with free exercise. How many interior landmarks are there in New York City, Judith? There are 117 as of now. That seems like a large amount, but compared to the number of historic landmarks other than interiors. It's a very small number. How many do you include in this book? We include 46. We had limits in terms of how large the book was going to be. We wanted to get representation in every borough of every type of landmark, which might include places of entertainment, libraries, uh, civic buildings, government, uh, museums, cultural, I think I've covered transportation areas. and theaters? Theater. I didn't say theaters, very important component. So we wanted all types of buildings all around the city. We wanted representation of a variety of design styles. Kate, was it difficult to whittle down that list? Very hard. I mean, even though it's a fairly curated collection of interiors that are actually landmarked in New York City, we aren't even able to cover half of them in the book. But the ones that we do cover, as Judith said, I mean, they really do, you know, all time periods, uh, all different styles, and they all tell a story about the way that New York City has evolved and the way that New Yorkers have lived and worked and dined and entertained themselves for Uh, a couple of centuries. We also wanted to get a mix of places that people knew. For instance, you couldn't not put Grand Central Station in, and places that had stories, but also to show people places they'd never heard of. 
On one side, you have Grand Central Station. On the other side, you have a subway station that yes. very few riders ever get the chance to see. Well, nobody can see. Except uh, for when they open it up every once in a blue moon, right? Very, very rarely. Only the Transit Museum has private tours. But we wanted things like the Brooklyn Historical Society, which very few people know about, office buildings that people don't know unless they have the occasion to go into them. Okay, tell me about that subway station. It's the City Hall subway station that you include in this book? Yeah, I mean, it's a fabulous interior that I've never been inside myself. Um, but it is uh, it, it was sort of the flagship station of the New York's original subway system. And uh, it's these, these cavernous sort of vaults below the sidewalk underneath City Hall Park. You know, it really does raise that issue about... Um, the public accessibility of some of these places, because on the one hand, it's important to preserve them um, as an artifact for future use, but use is so important when it comes to interiors and um, the way that they're managed. 9-11 affected access to yes, some of these buildings, right, Judith? 9-11 was one of the factors, not so much just buildings that we've included, the most obvious example being the Woolworth Building, which now has a sign out front that says visitors are not permitted before, uh, beyond this point. The other thing that affected uh, many, several of the interiors is the changes in use with time. Like the subway station, which no longer stopped being used because it couldn't accommodate the longer trains and the greater crowds, the TWA flight center couldn't accommodate wide-body jets. So that fell into disuse at the time the jets were introduced. The Cunard building was no longer useful as a place for people to get tickets when airplanes displaced uh, ocean liners as the most interesting way to travel, and there was no need for a space like that. So that's another example. Uh, Places like the movie palaces became obsolete when people we're no longer finding movies their primary form of entertainment when television and the multiplex in the suburbs displace them. So that's the kind of thing that happened to make us, make some of us look at interiors like this and decide that they were important to preserve. Talking about movie palaces, the book features the Lowe's Paradise, right, in the Bronx, a beautiful, beautiful theater. Yeah, it's amazing, and its preservation story is equally amazing because this is, you know, one of the classic examples of a grand movie palace that was designed for just lavish entertainment at a time when, you know, people really needed that kind of escapism in their lives. And so it was this great public place, but as culture changed and the industry changed, it was broken up into you know, smaller movie theaters, it fell into disuse, it burned. Um, it really took the efforts of uh, people in the community to save it and to finally get it to be designated as a landmark and, and preserved, and now it's in the process of being restored. That's on the Grand Concourse in the Bronx. Yes. And unfortunately, there are only five like that of these fantasy theaters, and uh, including one, I mean, in Queens and Brooklyn and one in Jersey City that's just now been restored. But these places also suffered, and I didn't mention it, because of the neighborhoods changing. The neighborhoods became 
less fashionable to say the least. So there were other reasons for not restoring the spaces. And indeed, two of the places in the book, the Paradise and the Mark Hellinger Theater, are now churches, which is lovely except limited in terms of access. On the other hand, they're preserved. And it's better to have them preserved with a new purpose than have them lost to us. A lot of repurposing going on in New York City, huh, Kate? Yeah, I mean, adaptive reuse is a, it's a wonderful way to sustain the lives of uh, all landmarks. But interiors, it's especially important because, uh, again, you know, finding a use and overcoming that issue of, of obsolescence because it's too easy to assume that you know a building or an interior can't be used again, um, and it's convenient to think that way if you want to redevelop the site, for example, and build something you know taller, bigger, or whatever. But adaptive reuse, there's so many wonderful examples in New York City. Um, they're great examples of buildings that continue to be used for the purpose for which they were originally built you know, lobbies of some of these great uh, New York City skyscrapers, um, Radio City Music Hall, which another example of a building or an interior that uh, that was assumed to be obsolete. Yeah, that was almost gutted at one point in time. It was almost gutted mm-hmm. so that a skyscraper could be built on top of it. And um, what a loss that would have been for New York City, for the world. But finances come into play because it never made enough money. So now it's finally reconfigured or re-managed by, what is it, MSG Entertainment, and apparently it is now able to survive. The other prominent example of changes in use are the banks, not just those in our book, but those, many of them all over the city. None of us have been inside a bank or most of us haven't needed to be inside a bank within the past several years since ATMs came into being. So these lavish spaces are expensive real estate that most banks can't afford to keep up. In fact, you know, banks that we, that we considered that we looked at are up for sale. And we can't change this by making them usable as banks now. What we can do, not we, but what the concerned citizens can do, is look for interested buyers who will value the space and reuse them in another way. The banks are primarily being turned into entertainment facilities, party facilities. And Cipriani has a couple of them. Cipriani has, I think, three uh, restored beautiful spaces that are now party spaces, which brings up another question of, is a party space really open to the public? It's open to the public if you're invited to one of the parties. It's not really an open space. So there is some, needs to be some reevaluation of what is permitted to be a landmark in case this, this problem comes up in the future. What are among the banks that you include in this book, and what makes them spectacular? Well, we include the uh, Williamsburg Savings Banks, both in Brooklyn, one actually in Williamsburg and the other one in uh, downtown Brooklyn. And um, they're, uh, in different ways, spectacular. I mean, one, the one on Hanson Place in Brooklyn is, is like a cathedral, 
I mean, you walk inside and it's just, I mean, you can imagine if you were um, a depositor uh, going to put your money in this bank, you would just feel like it was a glorious thing. And, of course, you'd feel very safe putting your money there. That has become an event space. And uh, the one in Williamsburg uh, was abandoned for years and years and just totally, um, um, nearly destroyed on the inside through neglect. And so to see it come back to life as a space where people can go and, you know, really celebrate some of the most important moments in their lives is, is pretty great. And uh, just, I think, goes to show that if people care enough, they can save anything. But we, we picked two Williamsburg because, truthfully, we couldn't, we couldn't eliminate either. One was the first bank, and at that point, Williamsburg was the largest savings bank in a time when savings banks were new, the largest of its kind, and the one in downtown Brooklyn, the cathedral form. The first one was uh, classical. The cathedral form one was the first branch bank, and truthfully, they were both so beautiful, we couldn't eliminate either one, but there are many banks around the city. You have the Dime Savings Bank also in this book. Where is that? The Dime Savings Bank is downtown Brooklyn. Also, there are banks, several of them, in Manhattan. The only bank that we know that we didn't include, or one of very few, the Apple Savings Bank, is still a bank and a landmark. But that's, I think there are two or three of them around the city. Uh, we We didn't talk about theaters. And I think Kate would want to talk about theaters. The whole group of Broadway theaters, of which we picked... One, we picked the Belasco as the most representative. How come? Well, the Belasco is, Schubert owns a lot of theaters, and we actually asked, and several of them, quite beautiful, but Schubert spent a great deal of money restoring the Belasco, which is the jewel of theirs, and the one that, of which they're most proud. And we thought it was beautiful enough to merit including as typical of the best of the Broadway theaters, many of which are landmarked because they represent a particular area of the city that was about to be destroyed. And, Kate, you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, who, who lived in New York City in the 1980s doesn't remember the Helen Hayes and the uh, Morasco and other theaters that were torn down to build the Marriott Marquis on Times Square. So the huge Times Square redevelopment and all of these Broadway theaters clustered around and just a time when, you know, the, the sort of the industry was in the doldrums. There was all this, you know, sort of blaming 42nd Street for the ills of the city. And, um, and so all of these theaters are really in the crosshairs of redevelopment. And so that, those demolitions sparked a movement to preserve Broadway theaters as landmarks. Plus the fact that what went up in their place was the Marriott Marquis, about which we will not speak further. <laughs> this is Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Today I'm talking with Judith Gura and Kate Wood about their new book, Interior Landmarks, Treasures of New York. The New Amsterdam is another theater that you include in this book. Yeah, the New Amsterdam, another case of a, of a building that was abandoned mid-renovation in the 1990s and um, you know, had to be rescued 
and is now beautifully restored. So again, you can save anything with, with the right people involved. But I think that the, the Belasco we love particularly because it is such a great story about how the Schubert organization, who had opposed landmark designation, along with other theater owners quite vociferously in the 1980s, came to embrace landmarks as a way to, um, they really s now see those interiors and, and you know, the, the buildings themselves as an asset to their business. And they spent $11 million just to restore the Belasco. They have an architect named Francesca Russo who's only working on Schubert theaters. I mean, that's, she's not an employee of Schubert. They are spending so much time and attention to keeping several theaters one at a time vacant in order to restore them. It's extraordinary concern on the part of a building owner. You need an owner who cares. You also need an owner with the money to be able to afford to do this. That said, how much opposition is there from building owners who don't want their interiors landmarked because they know that they can't do much with it if that's the case? They can't repurpose perhaps the way they want to? They have come to think, hopefully, in recent years that there is merit to promoting the fact that you have an old building. There are a couple of buildings that are being converted to residential use where the lobbies are being kept because they're glamorous. And I've seen advertisements which say, come see our landmark lobby. And indeed, a piece of the Woolworth building is being reconfigured, one section of it, for residences. A couple of other buildings downtown are being redone, and uh, it's, it's a selling point. So that makes it easier than saying to an owner, you have to care about this even if it's going to cost you more money to maintain it. We present some facts in the book about some of the interiors that, that you know, enough to raise questions about, you know, it, are, was this the right thing to have happened? Um, and mm -hmm. one case in point is the Manufacturers Trust Company building, another bank, but very different than the banks, you know, in Williamsburg, for example. It's a modern building, 1956. Where um, is that located? It's on 43rd Street and 5th Avenue, and it was designed by Gordon Bunshaft, uh, Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill. So it is a true break with bank design from previous eras. So very important both inside and out, and it's a practically transparent building, so the, the inside and the outside are seamlessly related to one another. The exterior was designated as a landmark back in the 1990s. It took until just a few years ago for the interior to be designated. Um, it was designated as the building was changing hands and a new tenant was moving into the interior. The interior was broken up into a couple of different retail spaces and there were significant aspects of the original design that the Landmarks Commission allowed to be changed as part of that pro project. So on the one hand you could say that the Landmarks Commission is pretty flexible when it comes to regulation, especially of interiors, because of this issue of use. But um, Judith mentioned before the importance of engagement by concerned citizens. There were concerned citizens who organized to really challenge what the Landmarks Commission had 
allowed in that case. And um, I think that... Unsuccessfully. Well, there was a settlement that was reached that got some of the original artwork returned to that interior, which was important. And I think it made the point that um, between the Landmarks Commission and advocates in the community and just the general public who, you know, it's really their interest that's at stake in preserving these places, that uh, we try to come to the best resolution that, that passes these interiors down from one generation to another in a way that, you know, is still readable, still legible. Well, we have tried to refer to the issue. I mean, this book is an effort to be unbiased. We didn't want to proselytize in either direction, but we tried to bring up the point that's relevant, particularly in Manufacturers Hanover, is that in, an, in a modern building, and this is very much international style, you have no way of separating the exterior and interior. The interior is integral partly because the decor is not on the walls, it's not on the ceiling or the floor, the decor is in the furniture. And when you look through the glass walls, the furniture is part of it. However, furniture is not covered in landmark designation. So when you change the furnishings, as is something that's being threatened at the Four Seasons restaurant, for example, you're going to change the original concept of the architect and designer, and maybe you're going to damage the integrity of the building. And this is a challenge that has to be met with buildings that have yet to be landmarked, as well as these two examples. There are buildings from the 80s that are old enough to be landmarked. As Kate pointed out to me in one of our early conversations, they may not be around long enough. They can be now torn down before someone has the foresight to landmark them. And in the future, we'll see them as lost relics of, of their period. Kate, are there any particular interiors that you would like to see fast-tracked right now? Well, I think uh, Judith's point is a good one because the most recent or the most contemporary interior that has been designated as a landmark is the Ford Foundation, which was mm. finished in the late 1960s. So we've got two decades so the 1970s and half of the 1980s that are now eligible for landmark designation. And to my knowledge, they haven't even been looked at. I mean, what was, what was really important um, when we started looking at interiors and sort of the history of preservation of interiors is that it seemed like nobody had really focused on them before, um, except for a landmarks commissioner and an interior designer, the only interior designer to ever have served on the Landmarks Preservation Commission. His name is R. Michael Brown, and he had started a survey project back in the late 70s to, to try to identify interiors that were worthy, landmark worthy, uh, because survey and identification is really the first step. So, so he had the foresight back then to, to organize a whole band of volunteers to go out into all of the boroughs and identify these interiors, and some of them have been designated. Um, many are still on that list. I think it's worth reviewing that list. But in the meantime, new interiors have been created, and as mm -hmm. Judith said, they're very vulnerable, especially at that kind of cusp where they're not quite eligible for designation. So I think the key is attention, which hopefully this book will draw attention to the issue, and people going out and really surveying and nominating. 
What would you say has been the biggest tragedy over the years of an interior that was destroyed well, that should have been landmarked? Grand Central Station. Grand Central Station was almost lost because Penn Station was destroyed. Penn Station's uh, demolition is what crystallized the movement, is what made ultimately what led to the landmark law. I mean, there are a couple of other places, but Penn Station is the one that is always brought up as an interior that we didn't appreciate until we lost it. Which is the oldest interior featured in the book? City Hall, which was really almost lost several times before a law was passed prohibiting its destruction. City Hall really was the facility outgrew the space. So there were plans along the way to several times along the way to raise it and put up a big new civic structure that would incorporate lots of other facilities. Fortunately, it's kept it was it was the center of the government, the American government for a while. And it represents the collaboration of an American and a French Frenchman, I mean who came to America. So it kind of mixes two styles. It also shows the cooperation of the two countries who were allies in the revolution. And it's an important part of New York history. Had the laws not been passed, the landmark law to begin with, City Hall might not have been saved. And indeed, there was some compromise in the renovation, in the restoration of City Hall, in that one of the rooms was accommodating television in terms of the color that the wall was painted, as opposed to the original color, because it, the color that it's now been repainted would come up better on television. So these are the kind of compromises which sometimes have been made, sometimes are made for political purposes. A call from the mayor's office is going to impact whatever is done. Sometimes they're done for financial purposes. And uh, the, the JFK Flight Center, the TWA Flight Center at JFK, is going to be a lobby. Fortunately, it's saved. It might have been better if it were as it was originally meant to be. The entrance to the JetBlue terminal, it didn't work. It was too costly. It didn't work with the facilities that JetBlue needed. But now something is being done around it so that it still will exist. What would you say might be the most unlikely interior that got landmarked? Any of those come to mind? Well, I love the fact that you know not only do we have these grand public spaces like Grand Central Terminal or Radio City, but the Merchant's House Museum. One of my favorite places in New York is, City. Which is, you know, just... A wonderful, we think of it as this Greek revival interior, but actually the basement level is also part of the interior landmark. And it is a just a, a, a sort of a family room with a hearth mm -hmm. and this amazing kitchen that just shows sort of the evolution of domestic life in New York City. So it's because it's a museum, it's eligible to be designated, but there are not that many kind of residential spaces that can be preserved as interiors. This is on East 4th Street, and I think it's the oldest home in New York City that was owned by a single family or something yes, like that. Yes, Apparently, the, uh, several generations lived there. The last woman died at 92 and had 
not really done much redecorating so that even some of the family's clothing was left. Let me ask you this question. Are we building in such a way today, our modern construction, today's construction, where we're going to care as much? I mean, the things that were built back then were absolutely magnificent. Are we building that way anymore? The recent past is a perpetual blind spot for preservationists and I think culture in general. The landmarks law, sort of the wisdom of the 30-year threshold is that it really takes that much time, sort of a generation, to be able to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. It probably takes more like 40 to 50 years. The Edward Durrell Stone Building at Two Columbus Circle was lost when it was about 40 years old, which interestingly is about the same age that um, Penn Station was when it was torn down. So if you think about are we building in a way that will be landmarkable in the future? I would say yes, because while I certainly don't agree that all contemporary architecture is worthy of preservation, I think that when we get that distance, we will see what we were able to build in our time that expresses our culture that is worthy of passing down to future generations. The Chrysler Building um, was designated when it was about 40 years old. Mm -hmm. And there were people who thought that was just crazy because it was an aesthetic joke. I mean, the Art Deco style really didn't come into general sort of understanding and appreciation mm -hmm. until the 1980s. So if we think about, if we kind of take that perspective that it takes a little time to understand how style and, and use and function, how, how all that fits into kind of the cultural spectrum, I think that we can be more optimistic for the future. The book is Interior Landmarks, Treasures of New York. Kate, thank you so much. Thank you. Judith, thank you. Thank you. Judith Gura and Kate Wood are the authors of Interior Landmarks, Treasures of New York. It's out now from the Monticelli Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here. <laughs>